Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. There will come a time when it isn't they're spying on me through my phone anymore. Eventually it will be my phone is spying on me. We may be inclined to think that Philip K. Dick's prediction is already ancient history. Artificial intelligence is on the march, and it seems destined to play a bigger and bigger part in our lives. Gut feelings about AI tend to be negative. Vivian Ming is an AI entrepreneur, but she has her doubts too, as she told the Naked Scientist podcast. I think what we're genuinely afraid of is people and what people will do with immensely powerful tools in their hands. AI can truly do some terrifying things, autonomous weapons, the use of artificial intelligence by autocracies to maintain power. Those are things we really need to worry about. The development of AI throws up many questions, not least for people of faith like me. My panelists are Dr. Beth Singler, junior research fellow in AI at Homerton College, Cambridge, and a self-confessed Star Trek fan, more of that later. And Dr. Goresh Andrej, a researcher at the Science and Research Center in Copa, Slovenia, and an assistant professor in philosophy of religion at the University of Groningen, Netherlands. He's also an associate lecturer here at the Wolf Institute. So let's start with you, Beth. Given human nature, do you worry, like Vivian, about the potential negative impact of AI? I mean, who guards the guards? Absolutely. Um, I think there are lots of reasons to be concerned about people's implementation of artificial intelligence and also people's assumptions that artificial intelligence is better than it actually is. We're not really at a stage where it can do all the numerous things it's hyped up to be able to do. And the application of AI in fields where really human intelligence is still very much required means that we'll see it spread out quite quickly in areas that could be detrimental to human flourishing. But what about the question of who guards it? I mean, it's a worry to those of us who don't know much about AI. We're worried about who's protecting us. There are numerous locations where the conversation is happening about regulation and policy when it comes to artificial intelligence everywhere in the EU, in America. But some of those conversations don't directly impact the people who are working on the technology because we don't have it written into law that there are things that can and can't be done with artificial intelligence. So it can sometimes seem like a a conversation that's turning in on itself with AI ethicists declaring what should and shouldn't be done, but actually the technologists going ahead and doing what they feel should be done anyway. Garaj, help us. What does that mean? You're a philosopher. Make sense of it. (laughs) Uh, 
Well, I think, uh, of course, ethical questions are here uh, in the foreground. And uh, the legitimate worry is, as Beth has said, that things are going quicker than our communal ethical uh, conversation and reflection can sort of take place and uh, ethical consensus can be built and so on. Um, but it is very complex question too because we live in a you know politically divided world we have very different approaches to that in very important countries like united states or china uh, you know on one hand we have huge companies that are very independent in what they do the more uh, control maybe through law and and such uh, mechanisms whereas on the other hand in china we have uh, strong state control and less in inhibitions maybe in law uh, so i mean these worries are legitimate and uh, uh, important but uh, i don't have any <laughs> any simple advice for us now what to do about it rather than worry look advice where we can etc so we start with worry but we have to move on from that don't we um, as a, a philosopher, Goraj, one of the questions that you've thought about, if you like, one of the big, que big questions is what does AI tell us about the big question, the almighty, the divine? Is there some connection between um, the invisible God and the invisible AI? Yes, I would say these questions, uh, uh, questions that, uh, you know, go into philosophy and religious studies, theology, as uh, that, that you mentioned, Ed, uh, are or can be treated slightly separately than from from the ethical questions. And this is simply because uh, ethical decisions need to be negotiated between people who believe or don't believe or believe in various different kinds of ways, uh, at, at least those decisions that will have any impact in society. Uh, but of course, philosophically speaking, uh, questions of relation of AI to uh, larger questions like, you know, relation to the divine or to what kind of beings human beings are and what AI is teaching us about that, which would be philosophical anthropology, are very exciting and interesting questions. And maybe in a longer term, they are also uh, practical questions but this is really longer termish thinking and that is when technology uh, intelligent technology will be more and more incorporated in our human bodies what will that mean for what does it mean to be a human being so this is a question that is not merely uh, ethical in terms of how to use ai uh, but it is also you know what should we think about ourselves as humans Beth, what are the implications for human self-understanding, for human dignity, if, for example, we're made up of 95% artificial elements? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Uh, I think there's a lot of discussion about the more extreme versions of transhumanism that propose a sort of cyborg future where we would be sort of 90% something else and whether like sort of the Theseus ship argument, if you keep replacing parts, is there something still essentially human that remains. But I also just wanted to go back to something that was just said about ethics and the question of the representation of AI as divine. Um, and actually, although we, we don't sort of prove that ontologically at this stage, the narrative of AI having super abilities and super intelligence and being responded to in a theistic way, and a lot of my work is about the cultural narratives of seeing AI as a theistic entity, actually does have an impact on our day-to-day -day ethical response to AI because people are assuming it can AI can do things that it can't yet do. 
So that kind of far future question of could AI in the future be something like a god is being answered by people now, even though the technology is nowhere near that kind of status. It's also that people are surrendering over their autonomy and trust to entities much larger than themselves. So we've already mentioned corporations. There's uh, a few people like David Runciman here in Cambridge who argue that we've already got artificial intelligence that's super intelligent. It's in the corporations as artificial agents. So there's a whole line of concern there in the ethical dimension of how much we are handing over our personal human autonomy to beings, entities that we conceive of as greater than ourselves, like artificial intelligence. And I suppose this is where China comes in, Goraj. You were hinting at that in a, a, a system that's much more controlling of its citizens than perhaps a slightly more disparate democratic society, would you say? I would I would tend to agree. I mean, we can sort of observe these differences, but the, these differences do have, as Beth has indicated, and I would agree with that, uh, they have to do with the deeper cultural sensibilities and imaginations and narratives that, you know, shape these societies. And of course, religious narratives have a role in that, although that role is very complex and sometimes it's very hard to trace. Uh, you know, so you have these imaginative stories and a certain kind of ideals of uh, what it means to be a good society and so on. And uh, it's a kind of a bricolage of different influences, how those things happen to shape up in, for example, as you say, China or um, in some contrast, but not complete contrast to the Western world, Europe and the United States. Uh, maybe philosophically interesting are... Uh, if we really want to go to a philosophy of religion, uh, are the differences between re relationship between human beings and and natural environment from how the you know the traditions have uh, imagined that? And uh, in the Far East, we have uh, through Taoism uh, in uh, in China, and for example, Shintoism in Japan, we have influences that go back to animistic traditions, and that would mean regarding non-human beings as um, having some kind of personality, even uh, non-biological beings, uh, which is less so in theistic traditions, of course, or even that was uh, pushed out in, in uh, the theistic traditions. Now, whether that has a very deep influence or not, there has been some research done on that, um, is kind of an open question slightly, but I would tend to believe it does. If you look at Japanese relationship to to robots, even before the development of AI, would be much more positive. And you know, social inclusion of robots in our lives is different. And there are no Frankenstein stories, stories of bodies without souls in that culture in such in such a way present. Can, can I come in on that? That um, I, I think a, a too strong binary between East and West and the discussion of animism in the East versus no animism in the West is, is too too strong, really, in the conversation generally outside of this podcast as well. Um, there are stories that are similar to the Frankensteinian monster of the being that is created and is considered soulless in, in the so-called East. And actually, um, we need to also recognize the animistic traditions of the so-called West. It's useful to recognize differences in cultural areas, but recognizing that there are multitudinous cultural areas between East and West, and also that our sort of Western privileging of our rationality is not always the case. Yeah, no, of course, I would agree with that there is no contrast between rational and irrational in what I was saying. Uh, but I would say, you know, 
uh, theism has had uh, an axe to grind against animism and against uh, all kinds of nature spirits. And I mean, uh, historical studies of Western thought can attest to that. And of course, it's not a, it's not a question of modernity only. It's a question of also Middle Ages, the uh, the kind of cathedral of of, of uh, classical theism, as it is called sometimes that you can see that in play, uh, much more hostility towards animism than there was uh, in, in, in Eastern uh, religions. But I mean, of course, this is an open debate and there are nuances here that we cannot cover now. Uh, Beth Goresh has touched on some of the sort of uh, religious questions, if you like, the sort of animism, uh, the sort of theism. Um, and um, I'm just wondering whether there are other uh, narratives that we can apply to help people understand AI. Uh, you're an anthropologist, so, so maybe there are some, uh, I'm sure there's areas of your own that uh, you, can, you can bring to this conversation. Um, yeah, so thinking of the way in which we approach AI as an object in discourse, as well as a very personified object, we can draw on classical anthropological ideas about how we create hierarchies of beings. Um, uh, we've touched on animism already, but sort of c conception of who gets to be an insider and outsider in a community and a culture is something that's constantly changing and historical perspectives help us here as well. So we've already mentioned relationship with non-human others and the question of where AI is going and larger questions of rights that are happening uh, in the conversation really come from a longer historical trend of really placing ourselves in oppositional relationship to other beings. Um, so in historical sense, we've seen this when the Western bloke, generally the Western white guy, has gone to other cultures, indigenous cultures, and observed their behavior and decided whether it is matching to their behavior and therefore uh, contemplative of being human. Uh, that label human gets attached to different groups at different times uh, as a woman that, you know, historically women also had their humanity questioned. So when people start talking about artificial intelligence, it's again this, this remapping of relationships, who gets to be considered within the group and with outside the group. And is it possible, do you think, to have a relationship with artificial intelligence? And that's a very broad question, but I'm thinking of Alexa, for example, um, where we hear this voice and, and we kind of relate to it. And even the Church of England uh, was using Alexa for the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and I just wonder whether uh, actually that's helping people relate uh, beyond the persons. Another analogy might be, uh, uh, the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Uh, as a Jew, I know that many Jews go there and find it an incredibly holy place. In some ways, there are stones. I mean, how does it help us? So I'm just wondering whether trying to personify AI is, is helpful or not in terms of uh, understanding and relating to it. I think the interesting thing about the Alexa skill that the Church of England released was that they were very clear in their press releases and press um, sessions that this is just something to teach you how to recite the Lord's Prayer. They weren't suggesting that Alexa would be praying on your behalf, whereas in other traditions, there has been this more sort of fluid response to who or what gets to pray and how, and technology has been involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. Personification and anthropomorphization is a big question, but it's one that's really quite unavoidable. And um, there's lots of social psychology research going on into how we respond to robots and how we perceive them as being in pain or um, 
being cute in various different ways. But even the most disembodied artificial intelligence like AlphaGo, people came and they drew fan art of what they thought AlphaGo would look like in a sort of humanoid form. So we're, I like the expression, we're hardwired for anthropomorphism because it is a sort of robomorphism that turns humanity into something that's programmable. We're hardwired, it's a technological term. So we're sort of we have this tendency towards it, this widening of our cosmology of beings, but we just have to be very careful that, yes, it can be cute, as in the fan art of AlphaGo, but if it's being hacked, if our emotions are being hacked by corporations to develop relationships for the corporation's benefit or individual billionaires' benefit, then you know that kind of anthropomorphism is a concern. Or the robomorphization that turns humans more and more into machines in their treatment. So Amazon workers in factories who get very short breaks and are almost already replaceable by robots because they're being treated like robots. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Beth Singler and Goraj Andrej. In some respects, artificial intelligence is similar to previous technological breakthroughs. Here's Vivian Ming again. So an interesting truth in my experience with almost all technology, not just artificial intelligence, is at least when it first comes out, it invariably helps the people that need the least help. Because people like me with very fancy degrees, living in elite places, we're the ones that can actually make use of it. This is true of the internet. This is true of educational technology. Turns out it's immensely true of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence increases inequality. We tend to make tools that make life a little easier. And it turns out that the people that are able to make the most use of it are the people that own large companies. And for them, making life a little easier is driving wages to zero. It comes down to good old-fashioned ethics. Gorash. I actually wanted to say something on what uh, continue a little bit on the topic that Beth has brought up with, with uh, anthropomorphization. Uh, so I would say this is we are bound, really hardwired, bound to try to make sense of things through our experience of things, and this is really very clear with uh, robots and AI how we do this. And I think there is a danger in that. Uh, there are uh, ethical, political dangers, as, as Beth has said, but there are also dangers in, in limiting our imagination about the future of AI. So where artificial intelligence can really develop. Some philosophers, uh, post-humanists, speculative post-humanists, uh, have actually uh, tried to uh, liberate that imagination also among philosophers, uh, let alone in general culture, science fiction and so on. I mean, artificial intelligence can be nothing like human intelligence. You know, it can achieve complex, very complex goals, much more complex goals than, than we do in ways that we cannot understand and can do that without using language and can communicate without using sentences and structured language. Uh, this, this really means that, uh, you know, science can undercut our imagination. It has done so in the past, it can done so in the future, and this would be some kind of cautionary remarks I can I can see from uh, from this type of philosophy. Could you give us an example, Gaurav? The, the future of, of, uh, of AI can be not like one robot being that acts somehow similarly than humans, but it can be uh, thousands of, 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 of uh, different uh, you know, uh, intelligences connected in a hive mind that bring up solutions to something that is completely unimaginable. That 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 kind of thing I'm talking about. 
Beth. Yes, absolutely support that um, comment on speculative post-humanism. And actually, we might be limiting our understanding of what AI could be based on our current experiences. But also, I think it's interesting to bring science fiction in at that point and say, of all the multitudinous ideas of what AI could and should be, AI, uh, science fiction has sort of been placing seeds of those thoughts for a long time. And uh, it's, it's fair to say some narratives dominate more than others. Uh, it's very hard to go very long reading the news reports about AI without seeing a Terminator image, of course. But there are many, many different ways that science fiction authors have helped conceive of what a future intelligence like AI might be like. Uh, so there's, again, as you say, the hive mind versions, the modular versions of AI, the multitudinal versions of AI, also the positive and negative interpretations of where AI could go. Science fiction, of course, as a form of fiction, needs the tension that a dystopia generates and the tension between heroes and antagonists. So AI does tend to go towards negative directions, but it does it does allow us sort of thought experiment spaces in which to conceive of different permutations of what AI might be in the future, even if we don't know. Is this an appropriate moment, Beth, for you to bring in Star Trek? <laughs> Yes, I am. As as you said, I'm a self-confessed Star Trek fan. I'm probably more of a next generation fan, although I have just sat through um, Star Trek Picard, which is the latest, which does the entire series. This season is about synthetic life and artificial intelligence. So, you know, I've been sitting script. I've actually written bits into an article just recently. Um, Absolutely. And this is, a, as I say, this science fiction presents us with a potential space for working out not only what artificial intelligence could look like, but how it would impact society. So if anyone's watching Star Trek Picard, it's all about this sort of binary again between the, the positive interpretation of a speculative post-humanism where we might go with artificial intelligence and a very negative one. There's this thing called the admonition, a vision people have. And for the, so the biological life forms who receive the admonition, it's disaster. They see absolute chaos and apocalypse. And the synthetic life forms, when they receive the admonition, they see a future where they evolve and they succeed. So this, this binary is a very strong thing in our cultural narratives around the world. You see it everywhere. But the truth is probably you know that muddling grey middle ground where some things will be better and some things will be worse. Yes, I always feel much happier in, in a sort of theology of ambiguity um, than uh, in this sort of clear cut right wrong situation. Um, I just wonder whether science fiction, though, uh, like religious language, but science fiction may allow us to break some of the, the simplicity that you both have been commenting on. Um, the use of simplistic language and, and uh, customs, but somehow science fiction allows you to break away from that. And maybe it, it's liberating when it comes to particularly to understanding AI. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as I say, they, there does tend to be these strong tensions in the stronger dominant narratives, but there's great many examples of artificial intelligence stories in science fiction where it's not so clear who the good guys and the bad guys are, or that the AI itself is the main character. And that's always an interesting approach from an author because they're trying to delve into a mind that they're imagining and how much it's like or dissimilar to a human mind. So maybe one of the questions we should ask if we're going to pursue the ethical conversation is uh, social etiquette, for example. I mean, this question of whether we should be polite to robots or to uh, the, the sat-nav in the car. And of course, it makes no difference to who you're speaking to, but maybe it's teaching us that, that being polite to a robot actually has nothing to do with our relationship with a robot. It's to do with our relationship with other people. So if you'd like to give it a biblical uh, analogy, 
the story of um, Adam and God in the Garden of Eden. And, and God says at one point, where are you, according to the book of Genesis? Now, of course, that's a ridiculous question because God should know where Adam is. But it was to teach Adam that God was looking for him. So it was something about Adam rather than God. And I'm just wondering whether from the, the question of ethics, that there are things to learn about us in our ethical attitudes and our ethical behavior when it comes to AI, rather than any questions of the consciousness of robots or whether, whether robots have souls and those sorts of questions. I would certainly suggest that uh, our behavior in relation to the technological that presents itself as a person when the line is being so blurred at the moment and so your AI passes the Turing test basically every day because people are easily anthropomorphizing it. I think it actually says a lot about us as humans and that perhaps we should present our argument along the lines of manners maketh man, brackets human, to include everyone, that the way we choose to approach technology that is presenting itself quite often as female as well in the case of AI assistance says a lot about how we treat other people that as that as I say the line between the anthropomorphized robot and the robomorphized human blurs as we increasingly treat humans as parts of a machine we might not be able to tell the difference so we should generally be quite polite I suppose to demonstrate that we have that ability to be concerned about other beings whether or not that other being is concerned in the case of AI about our behavior. Courage. Yeah this is I mean this is quite an interesting question of course uh, on one hand I would say that we are almost bound to be somewhat anthropocentric as human beings that means uh, human solidarity uh, not you know as opposed or against the beings that are not human, but in some sort of differentiation to non-human, I think remains a kind of uh, uh, very strong uh, tendency and will remain. And in a way, you know, to try to treat technological beings as the same as humans, it, it would be, I think, very, very constitutively very hard for us. Because the way, you know, build up human solidarity is about human weakness uh, that has to do with our physical bodies, with our frailty, with our brokenness, etc. And lots of art and ethics and care for one another is really built on that, on, uh, you know, human brokenness. And of course, the whole idea of of technological advancement, at least with transhumanists, is to uh, break away from that weakness that is endemic to humans, to, to all these uh, limitations that we have because of our, you know, very slow, erring uh, biological bodies. And in a way, I see one possible future of ethics in the face of the of the uh, ever, you know, ever greater similarity between robots and humans is uh, how to take care of us as weak beings compared to technologically more advanced intelligences. Uh, and here, of course, is uh, human solidarity is would be one important thing, which need not be, you know, it cannot anymore be like we are the most intelligent, we are the best beings in this world, because we will soon not be in many uh, in many respects, but there is a certain kind of uh, solidarity uh, impulse there that I uh, I resonate with. We're drawing towards a close, and uh, I think I'd like to move to a final question. You talked about human solidarity, Goraj, um, and I wonder if we can look in terms of the next generation of human solidarity. I know that, for example, uh, our parents struggle with some of the technology that we're at ease with, 
Um, and I think that we probably struggle with some of the technology that our children are at ease with. But I'm just wondering what the next generation will be uh, thinking and working, how they will be working with, with AI. Part of my, my work has always been to do public engagement. And I've spoken at a lot of schools to kids of various ages, including down to just six, seven-year-olds. And what's very interesting is how immediately literate they are in the cultural representations of AI and robots. So they've watched science fiction. They're far too young to have seen, actually, in some cases. But they've watched all the science fiction. They know all the Terminators and the cyborgs and things. They have that science fiction literacy. But what a lot of people don't have of many age groups but will increasingly be a problem is the literacy to know when AI is being used and it's being used invisibly. So the representation of the robot, yes, we can indicate towards that, but it's the AI in our systems that isn't expressly shown to be AI, that doesn't come with a disclaimer that says, in this interaction, you are now interacting with AI. This AI has made a decision about your future mortgage, about your ability to get healthcare, about your diagnosis, all these elements of invisible killer robots that we've talked about before. That's the culture that our children is, are moving into. And what I want to try and encourage is them to be more and more aware of where the machines are making decisions and humans are going along with them. So when my son's 20 something, it might be that a lot of his career path and his choices are dictated by decision making systems that are behind the scenes. And we already know algorithmic bias within those systems will privilege some people over others. Uh, so I'm worried to what extent he's privileged or underprivileged by those systems. And I will try and educate him to have some sort of awareness of what might be going on. Yeah, I think that what you have just said, it uh, sort of gives us uh, adults a kind of a straw to hold on that we still have a role in some way to teach them about the dangers. Because, of course, that 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 is very much the case that uh, children um, today, they, they swim with that and they are surrounded by AI suggesting them all kinds of things. And they do not necessarily problematize it or they problematize it, you know, when they grow up enough to become um, ethically, politically critical of these things. And of course, it's a natural development that you become political animal only with your, let's say, either early adult or then later adult age. Not always, of course, but that's a kind of a uh, general trend. So in this sense, you know, we can kind of say, oh, hooray, we still have a role. <laughs> Although they are so much more technologically literate, uh, there needs to be this awareness of all kinds of dangers, uh, how AI can be abused politically and ethically, not necessarily, you know, invasively, technologically and so on. Uh, and, so that's that's a kind of a one thing that I can see the in, of an intergenerational uh, collaboration of the future. Well, it's good to end with some sense of collaboration for the future, and uh, let's hope that artificial intelligence can not only be intelligent but used intelligently across the generations. Thanks to my guests Beth Singler and Goraj Andreich, and thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, or reflections of your own. You can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk. And let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. <laughs>